This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joel Show podcast. Today on the pod, safety in tech, BC moves to restrict cell phone use in public schools. Is it the right way to go? Plus, UBC student Abu Bashar Rahman joins us to discuss cycling through Bangladesh and his new documentary film, Stories of Change, which look at the impact of climate change in Asia. Plus, Vancouver Sun crime reporter Kim Boland drops by to discuss her new series, looking at the long tentacles of organized crime in Vancouver and how they're reaching all corners of the globe. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today, Premier David Eby, along with BC's Attorney General and then the Education Minister, announced cell phones will be restricted in BC public schools beginning in September. The Premier says cell phones have been causing significant risk to our young people, from cell phones being a distraction in classrooms, social media platforms hooking children, using addictive uh, algorithms, and predators exploiting young people. Uh, Dave, Premier David Eby spoke today along with the Attorney General and the Minister of Education. Uh, he was asked how he thought this particular policy would take shape. Take a listen. How uh, this policy takes shape at each individual school board will be uh, directed by the school boards and in partnership with uh, teachers to make sure this is actually effective. We know there are kids with disabilities that need access to cell phones, for example, to be able to learn. So we want to make sure that those local decisions about how the policy is implemented takes place in a way uh, that is effective and is supported so it actually has the impact that we're looking for. So while the legislation will be provincial, it'll be up to schools uh, to decide how they'll restrict the use of mobile phones uh, where kids, to, for example, may want to leave their phones in their bags or in their lockers uh, as well. Now, Attorney General Nikki Sharma did speak to our colleague Joe Bennett uh, earlier today and was asked on how the Attorney General and government can prove social media companies are at fault if a child is addicted. Take a listen. What are the population level impacts? So it's often hard to prove direct individual ones, but in terms of population impacts, we can have proof of that. We can have proof of that saying from a rise in healthcare costs related to mental, mental um, health impacts on young people, educational programs that we've been forced to put into schools to deal with the negative impacts of social media. There's the population level impacts that we're going after. And I think what we think, and I think um, a lot of British Columbians would agree, is that it's not right that taxpayers are holding um, the bag on these costs when rightly it should be the companies that pay, is paying for the impact of their product or their conduct on the population. Now, what the minister was speaking to, of course, is the province saying that they're going to launch services to remove images from the internet and pursue predators and introduce legislation to hold social media companies accountable for the harms uh, they have caused. For more on this, we're joined now by Ritsna Singh, BC's Minister of Education and Child Care. Minister, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. Is it fair to say you're treating big tech just like big tobacco? I would say that we are we are just doing everything to uh, to make sure that our kids are safe, uh, that they are healthy, and any uh, and that's why it is a multi ministry announcement. Uh, and but that we just want to 
make sure that this is happening, that the kids are safe and uh, that we are taking it extremely seriously. Mm-hmm. Can you walk me through some of the conversations you're having behind the scenes to get to today to make that announcement? I know the new legislation will be introduced uh, during the spring sitting, but walk me through the last few months in regards to the conversations you've been having uh, to uh, get to today. Yeah, uh, so uh, since the since uh, the schools opened uh, last September, uh, we have been having conversations uh, and just uh, looking at the impacts that the cell phones have on children's health, uh, on their learning, on their mental health. And uh, from the education point of view, like we know that cell phones can be can be a distraction uh, that a lot of times, as uh, we know, at the same time, we also know that a lot of schools, a lot of school districts have very strong policies regarding the cell phone usage. My own daughter goes to a high school and I check with her uh, often, like how does it work? And she tells me that uh, the teacher doesn't allow the cell phone use during the instruction time. So I know those things, we know that those things are in place. But with today's announcement, what we wanted to do was a consistent policy uh, that uh, the school districts uh, would, need to, would need to have a policy, and uh, but they will work with their teachers and because they know their student population very well. So that's how they will develop those policies. Uh, for the legislation that the uh, Attorney General is bringing, uh, about the intimate images. Uh, we will have more information about that on Monday, but the legislation is in works. Uh, that is coming mostly, it is coming from her ministry. Um, in regards to practical purposes, once the legislation is introduced, and, and, and as I was mentioning, the minister, uh, the premier mentioned, it'll be up to school district to decide what that policy uh, is. But let's say if you're a math teacher and you still need uh, your students to come in and bring their cell phones to use a calculator or perhaps there may be other algorithms or any any other program that may be required. You can still have cell phones in classrooms if the teacher feels that it is warranted? Yes, that's why we are not uh, bringing out any blanket policy from, uh, from the province. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why we are leaving it to the school districts uh, to develop those policies in consultation with the teachers because the teachers are on the ground uh, they know their student population. And as the Premier mentioned today, we know that they're kids with diverse abilities, uh, kids with accessibility issues. Uh, and that's, uh, we really want to keep that in mind. And we really, uh, and I'm sure when school districts come out with their own policies, that they will be looking at all those factors and those flexibility, wherever those accommodations need to be made, those flexibility measures need to be taken. I, I'm sure that they would be considering those. Uh, why do you think there's a need to sue big companies like Facebook and, and Instagram? Uh, why do we need to, go, need to go that far in your mind? Besides banning uh, phones in schools, one would argue that's enough. And up to that, after that, it's up to parents to decide and to watch their kids. Why do you think government needs to get involved in the issue of, of going after big tech companies? It is uh, uh, today's announcement. Uh, it was a very emotional one uh, when we heard from Taylor and Nicola uh, Carson's parents uh, today, it's just heartbreaking. No parent should be going through that. And that's uh, uh, making the announcement and having such a legislation is important because we know that parents cannot do this by themselves. They need the supports. And the government have a responsibility how, how our kids are treated, how our kids uh, can be kept safe. And that, this is what, this is, uh, I think, uh, uh, the whole legislation that is coming up in spring is all about that, that it is uh, that the big companies are liable if they are bringing 
doing any kind of damage and especially the damage that we have seen uh, especially in the stories that we story that we heard today from Nicola and Ryan no no parent needs to go through that and we just want to make sure that every child is safe mm-hmm. and that was a, a case specific uh, to a 12-year-old boy named Carson who died by suicide after falling prey to online sextortion. And you were talking about uh, uh, Carson's parents, Ryan Cleveland and Nicholas Smith, as you're saying, whose 12-year-old son died by suicide because of uh, he was falling prey to online sextortion, which, as we know, is 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 uh, and harassment. All those things are very common online, especially with, with young people. Um, Minister, uh, I'm curious, uh, Ontario, Quebec, I know they have legislation. Is this stronger than that? legislation or is this going to borrow from legislation from that part of the country? So ours is like, uh, as we said, it is a policy, uh, a strong directive to all the school districts on the policy. I know that Quebec, Ontario have the similar policies. It is about restricting the cell phones. Uh, and uh, uh, we, as I said before, Jess, like we want to make sure that it is not, we, we don't want to do a blanket a policy uh, from the uh, from the province or from the ministry, mm-hmm. and uh, we really want to make sure. But it it what we are looking at is the impact of it. Like we want to look at it in the bigger picture, the impacts that the cell phone use has, whether it is on our learning, whether it is on the student safety, whether it is on their mental health. That's what we really want to counter, and that's why. Uh, it was important to make this announcement. It is important to get this message and have this thing in process so that when we start the new school year, 2024-25 school year, the school districts are equipped and they have all these policies in place uh, and make sure that the kids are safe and they are learning in a First of all, they are learning in safe environment and they are getting the quality education that they deserve. Minister, thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jess. Thanks uh- for having me. This afternoon, UBC Connects presents the, presents the journey of a young Bangladeshi man and student of international economics who cycled across Bangladesh to capture stories of climate justice, change, adversity, and resilience. So UBC student Bashar Rahman uh, was that student in his documentary film, Stories of Change, follows his journey from uh, the northernmost region of Bangladesh to the south, where he met families and groups and listened to their stories of resilience and bravery. And he joins us now. Uh, Mr. Rahman, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Jess. So how did you come up with the idea of wanting to uh, travel across Bangladesh, which is your homeland, uh, and to tell these stories? Uh, How did you come about that idea? Absolutely. So I was part of the uh, UBC delegation at Conference of Parties, which was an annual conference of climate change Mm -hmm. by the United Nations in Egypt. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that stood out for me in that conference was the lack of representation from Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. Bangladesh, being the seventh most climate vulnerable country in the world, had only 80 delegates uh, compared to the hundreds and thousands of delegates from countries like Canada, US and rest of the world. Mm-hmm. So having a lack of representation meant a lack of stories, a lack of policy reform, a lack of finance and a lack of advocacy for Bangladeshis. And me being there as a Bangladeshi, I I, I was concerned about if I am the right representation myself. So I wanted to learn about climate change. And although I know the academics of it, which I uh, study at UBC, I wanted to see for myself what it really means to live in the climate adversities. Mm-hmm. And the best way I thought would be to just go in Bangladesh and travel across the country and talk to people, talk to, listen to them, listen to their stories, listen to how they deal with it. Mm -hmm. And I was going there with a thought that there's going to be a lot of difficulties, 
but what i found was the remarkable resilience of people mm-hmm. people fighting back um despite all the odds in their like you know not in their favor mm-hmm. so i think that really motivated me uh attending cop 27 and i think once i had that uh exposure i thought that it's best if i document it and i was able to make a documentary film and premiere it at the next un conference which happened in dubai a few months ago and yeah. we yeah and in regards to uh, the population of bangladesh what is it now about 120 million roughly? it's 170 ish million One, 170 million yeah. and right now they they produce about 0.56% of global emissions and canada is around 1.5% yeah. with 40 million people just to put that in context right uh now when you look at bangladesh one of the things we there's a lot of talk about is just water rising sea level rise and the impact it's having on people did were you able to meet people who've had to already move absolutely i met a lot of climate refugees um there's a region in northeast of bangladesh called shunamganj and there we have a lot of wetland which are which are in bangla called haur so they remain underwater for four months a year uh because of the nature of their geography with having the mountain range in the north mm-hmm. and that being like a very low lying area with climate change what's happening is now those regions are being underwater for 6 months sometimes even 7 months and 7 months of being underwater means everything is closed there's no healthcare no education there are pockets of islands of houses in some places which are floating houses and i was able to go to that place and like talk with the people how their lives are and just interacting with the children people of my age uh, younger than me and seeing how you know they have like they 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 don't know what really means to live a life with like you know not the climate adversity because they grew up with it but the sudden increase the frequency of how adverse their life has become over the last few years mm-hmm. uh that really concerns them mm-hmm. and but they're they're not giving up they're being innovative they're picking up new lifestyles new livelihood some of them are creating floating schools even and i think um other than that like the whole country is a land of river and water is a very integral part of how everyone in bangladesh lives my mom herself she had to move because of water because her house and everything was uh went under water for river erosion mm-hmm. uh and that is just accelerating with climate change my mom luckily was able to move to the capital um because we like you know we had the finances to do that yes. but there are thousands if not millions of people who don't have that uh, do you think the west understands i mean i when you look at british columbia we talk about cooling centers in the summer we've talked about people who have died because of heat just a few years ago over 600 we have wildfire challenges there's no doubt climate change is impacting british columbia uh, but we are also a, a nation that is wealthy in the grand scheme of things and able to address some of these issues through money and budgets and being able to uh, have firefighter more hire more firefighters uh, uh you know make climate resiliency part of our year long budget process now everything is looked at through the lens of climate change for developing nations like bangladesh it's a lot different uh, do you think westerners appreciate the impact the climate change is going to have on the global south i think sometimes i listen to even the conversation here with senior members of government i kind of go we actually have it pretty lucky in the grand scheme of things compared to bangladesh compared to uh, india compared compared to thailand or vietnam i mean in africa do you think the west understands the impact of climate change on that part of the world yes and no i think i study economics for a lot of 
the conversations that I have with my peers, with my professors, a lot of them are just numbers. Uh, in the flood that happened in Pakistan in 2021, mm-hmm. uh, my professors, uh, the people I know in Canada, they were talking about the economic loss, the thousands of deaths. I think we have to step out of the number. We have to look at the story. Mm-hmm. It's it's the story of Jamal who didn't go to, like lost his family. It's a story of Kamrul who is probably not able to see, um, you know, his mom again because like of something. It's it's the story of people who lose their cows, which is like the main source of income for them. Mm-hmm. I think it's high time we appreciate uh, we looked at things in terms with empathy. Um, with a lens that is beyond numbers. And I think the West still lacks that. Mm-hmm. And the only way to bridge that gap is through storytelling, through em- uh, empathy, through creating possibilities where people are able to interact with each other. Mm-hmm. I think at the at the core of like climate, the climate crisis, we have an empathy crisis. I think people are not truly able to put themselves in the shoe of someone who's living in Shunamganj and has lost everything they have ever owned and then have to, like, you know, even if they build something, they know that they're going to lose everything next year with the floods. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think definitely, like, you know, the capacity of us to empathize with someone is dependent on our experiences on how we see the world, what we have been exposed to. Mm-hmm. But I think it's high time uh, we truly seek out what it means for our actions, people who live in the global north, people who live in countries like Canada, US, what does... a uh, a uh, ton of emission actually means for the rest of the world. And I think we truly have to seek that out. Um, and, and I'm happy to say that, like, you know, although I live on campus in university and sometimes it can be a bubble uh, because there's like a lot of echo chamber, people are talking about these things. But when you go beyond it, I think um, we need to truly give opportunities for people to have access to those information and not keep themselves within the bound of, you know, what they're exposed to, but rather truly tell the story of the rest of the world. And I think that global lens is establishing like with days. Well, Bashir, I want to say thank you so much for dropping by. I really appreciate your the conversation uh, and your documentary Stories of Change uh, is airing tonight uh, at 6.30 p.m., I believe, yeah. uh, at UBC Robson Square. Thank you so much, and it was an absolute pleasure meeting you. Thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciated it. that was begins right now joining me now is keith baldry global bc's legislative bureau chief how you doing keith happy friday happy friday lots to talk about and generally we talk about stuff that's occurred earlier in the week but let's talk about uh, one of the main stories of today and that of course is the bc government uh, announcing three major steps to protect children from online threats including restricting cell phone use in schools they said they want to set up a service to remove photos from the internet and pursue predators and they want to create legislation to hold social media companies accountable for harms uh, they have caused. Let's shoot to focus on the issue number one. That, of course, is the idea of restricting cell phone use in schools. Uh, a lot of parents and, and folks that even in the first hour that we talked to have been saying they like the idea, but schools already kind of have a policy. They're just not, you know, going after some of this stuff. Like they're not telling students keep those cell phones out of the out of the classroom. It depends what school district you're talking about. Some school districts have moved rather aggressively. Some have not. So it's sort of a checkerboard around the province mm-hmm. of, uh, of these rules. So now it's going to be mandated uh, to 
uh, banned cell phones from, from classrooms with some exceptions. Uh, David Evey making that announcement this morning, but he made it clear there are going to be some exceptions. Some special needs kids may require um, uh, a cell phone use, So, but that's going to be very small in number. I think most parents are going to welcome this idea, although some parents want to keep constant contact with their kids. Uh, so there, be, there may be some pushback on that. It doesn't start till the next school year. And, again, there's going to have to be a lot of consultation with parents and teachers and school administrators between now and then. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, let's listen to uh, a comment here, because one of the things uh, the Premier announced today is that they want to create legislation to hold social media companies accountable for harms they have caused as well. Um, one of the folks joining uh, the Premier and Nikki Sharma, the Attorney General, and Rajna Singh, the Education Minister, was uh, Ryan parents Ryan Cleland and Nicholas Smith. Their 12-year-old son, Carson, died by suicide after falling uh, prey to online sextortion. Take a listen to Ryan Cleland here, Carson's father. Carson panicked. Right then he made a snap decision and tried to take his own life. My wife, Nicola, came home and found him hanging by thread on the floor. She called 911 and he hung on for hours At around 20 after 1, October 13th, we had to make the worst decision any parent has ever had to make. And we had to take Carson off life support. Keith, I mean, this incredible testimony today, incredible comments from uh, Ryan Cleland and Nicholas Smith, uh, really once again bringing home the impact this online world uh, has on some of our children. It's not a, 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 a school uh, environment that you and I grew up in. But when I hear, uh, in this case, uh, Mr. Cleland speak, it's a reminder that we've got a lot more to do when it comes to protecting kids and this online world. Oh, for sure. Um, many people are just brand new at this experience. It's uh, We've had troubling case, Amanda Todd, of course, um, so it's interesting. We asked the premier, okay, it's one thing to say you're going to sue social media, but how do you actually do this? And he mm-hmm. compared it to similar moves by this government and others to go after the tobacco industry and opioid manufacturers with some success in some instances. The U.S. Congress has been going after Facebook for a number of years now without success. Uh, these social media companies have very, very, very deep pockets and they can withstand uh, a significant legal challenge. So we'll see. The bill is going to be brought to the House uh, in the spring session, which begins in mid-February, and we'll see how it plays out over years. I mean, it took a long time for the tobacco legislation to have an impact, um, but eventually it did. Uh, and opioid manufacturers have been successfully sued, um, notably Purdue, down in the United States. So uh, it'll be groundbreaking legislation, I think, for Canada, but uh, we'll see how successful it proves to be uh, in the court system. Also, on Monday, uh, launching a new website, which will expedite the ability to eliminate explicit images of people on the Internet. Um, uh, Nikki Sharma unveiling that, saying she's going to have more details next week. Uh, you know, what I, these, these uh, social media firms and even the, the, the search, uh, search uh, uh, companies as well, like Google, you know, their core argument is we're just the dumb pipes. We're the distribution network. We're not responsible for this stuff. And that's been always the challenge. Well, it's it's the the algorithms that they put in their site, which drives people, just creates this this circle of of things that people are suddenly uh, presented with. So they do play a role in determining what you're looking at on your social media account. I mean, just anybody, you go to Google, Google a few things. 
of one topic and see if it show how long it before it shows up in your Facebook feed. I mean, these social media companies are linked in that way, and that's where I think the legislation is going to be aimed at. All right. Well, let's move to another issue, and that, of course, is Chief Coroner Lisa Lapointe uh, holding a press conference the other day, uh, and what is quite uh, eye raising in the sense that you know she's talking about number one the amount of people that have died and continue to die because of uh, our toxic drugs, uh, talked about uh, decriminalization and safe supply. But I wouldn't say maybe it's taking a shot, but certainly aimed um, her guns at some political leaders who she feels um, uh, are, are, are going after not just her, but those who are talking about a safe supply. Walk me through this, because I understand you went to the press conference. Yeah, so this is Lisa LaPointe's farewell news conference. She's retiring. Um, she's going to be doing media uh, appearances from now and then. I think she's done a great job as a coroner. But she made it clear in her last news conference, and she's sort of been hinting at this, but she was much stronger uh, on her news conference this week, which was you know the monthly re- report about deaths due to opioid uh, overdoses, that she thinks politicians are not being, in her words, brave enough, that they've got to start risking their political capital to make the moves uh, that she thinks are required, or uh, alternatively, allow health professionals to run, to govern the, the, and make the decisions regarding this public health crisis when it comes to opioid drugs. Similar is, of course, public health officials really called the shots and set the rules during the COVID, the height of the COVID pandemic in BC. Not everywhere, but certainly in British Columbia. And so it seems to be suggesting a similar approach should be used. In in that regard, she wants uh, a great expansion of non-prescribed toxic drugs um, and guaranteed to try to make the supply safer for people. But no politician, including Premier David Evey, who made it clear this week, he has no intention of bringing in... Uh, such a situation, knowing it would not be popular, likely with the rest of the population. Yeah, and I I understand where she's coming from, but ultimately elected officials have to be accountable to the public and they have to read the room. Uh, Here's Ms. LaPointe uh, uh, saying uh, that using drugs in public uh, is uncomfortable, but questions whether it's actually any risk to uh, to her or any member of the public personally. Take a listen. Seeing somebody use drugs in public is not comfortable. Um... But is that a risk to me? Is my safety at risk because I see that? Uh, one would argue if you're at a playground or even just walking out and about, it is a danger, or at least very, very much if you're walking out and about, you're not going to feel comfortable. Not everybody, well, but people feel uncomfortable. There's physical uncomfortableness, and there's also psychological. Yes. And I think that's more of a concern for people. Yes, you know, someone 30 feet from you who's using a needle is not going to necessarily uh, hurt you. But psychologically, it might have an impact on you or young people and kids that may be in your uh, accompaniment. So, again, she's advocating an approach that, on the one hand, may actually um, work when it comes to reducing the amount of deaths or tragic circumstances. On the other hand, it is out of step, I think, with public opinion. And that's the the balancing act politicians have to walk here as well. I mean, Kevin Falcon... um, before that report was even made public, came out with a statement saying that the whole decriminalization has to be walked back, just get rid of it and go back to basically uh, more emphasis on treatment and enforcement. Uh, That approach hasn't worked either, but nevertheless, you've got politicians uh, not in the same universe is what Lisa LaPointe is advocating. And I'm not sure she's actually ever going to be successful or her successor if they adopt the same call of the ability to convince governments of the day to adopt a no-holds-barred drug policy, I think, are not very good. 
Well, let's revisit uh, our uh, top story today. Premier David Eby, along with the Attorney General Nikki Sharma and Rachna Singh, our edu- uh, Education Minister, uh, had a major press conference to talk about cell phones. BC government is taking three major steps uh, to what it says is to protect children from online threats. It includes restricting cell phone use in schools, uh, setting up a service to remove photos from the internet and pursue predators, and create legislation to hold social media companies accountable for harms uh, they have caused. Here is uh, Nikki Sharma, who was speaking to our Jill Bennett earlier today uh, in regards to how they plan to address the issue uh, and the impact uh, cell phone use uh, is having in schools. Nothing's more important than protecting our kids. And I think a lot of parents out there are struggling with the cell phones and the technology in kids' life. There's a lot of benefits to it in terms of connecting with your kid, um, being able to have educational tools on there, but there's a lot of harms. And we know that cell phone usage during instructional times in school can take away from the goals of learning, but also there's all these pressures on that phone, whether it's social media, the negative impacts of that, um, you know, all the other things that show up on the cell phone. So what we're going to be asking is for school districts to have policies in place that restrict the use of cell phones during instructional times. That was Attorney General Nikki Sharma speaking earlier today. Now, as I said, it's not just about restricting cell phones in school. Uh, The minister there, the Attorney General, says that they also want to create legislation to hold social media companies accountable for harms they have caused. At the press conference was Ryan Cleland and Nicholas Smith. They are parents uh, from the interior. Uh, They lost their 12-year-old son, Carson, uh, because he died of suicide after falling prey to online sextortion. Take a listen to uh, Mr. Cleland's comments. Carson panicked. Right then he made a snap decision and tried to take his own life. My wife, Nicola, came home and found him hanging by a thread on the floor. She called 911 and... He hung on for hours. At around 20 after 1, October 13th, we had to make the worst decision any parent has ever had to make. And we had to take Carson off life support. That was Ryan Cleland uh, talking about uh, his son Carson, as I said, uh, died by suicide at the age of 12 after falling prey to online uh, sex extortion. Joining me now to talk about today's uh, announcement and uh, the le- pending legislation is Jesse Miller, social media expert and founder of Mediated Reality. Jesse, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jess. Let's talk about the first issue, which is, of course, um, the restriction of cell phones in schools. Do you support that idea? Yeah, so we're seeing a lot of talk about bans. The restriction is, is the key word here, and I think that some of the wordplay is going to become uh, a bit of a conflict point. Uh, restriction is regulation. Regulation then applies to how we can uh, empower teachers and school districts to really put policies into place that allow for the devices to be used in healthy, pro-social, pro-participatory ways. We saw Ontario introduce a ban, and so the ban basically kind of puts an onus on parents to say, don't send your kids to school with phones or Teachers are going to have to police this. The restrictions with understanding of each child's unique needs for personal devices uh, really is the effective way of introducing this conversation. Uh, Many have said that, look, the schools already have this. It's a question of whether or not uh, teachers and administrators have been aggressive in implementing it or uh, addressing it in their respective classes. Do you think that this type of comment, the commentary today and the announcement today really isn't going to accomplish more than which has already been happening in our schools anyway? 
Well, we, we knew that the premier and, and, and the ministers involved were going to be taking steps to really address some of the social media issues that we, we, we've experienced last week with Kevin Falcon announcing this, quote unquote, ban uh, at the ballot box. This conversation, I think, escalated into a space where it's not really a voting issue. The onus is on school districts to make choices about what the policies look like in their schools, about how mobile personal technology and personal property come into the building. Educators should have a decision about how these tools get used in their class. But we also need curriculum that reflects how to use these tools in healthy ways. And the, the controlled environment of, of secondary learning is the best place to learn how to regulate these devices, not only for the purpose of work, but the purpose of post-secondary education as well. Mm. Uh, now, uh, the broader issue uh, of, of holding social media companies accountable for harms they have caused, there is significant litigation in the United States where school districts have hired uh, lawyers. Many of them have worked uh, going after asbestos companies and, and um, big tobacco. Uh, I believe in Florida, they've advanced a bill banning social media for young teens under the age of 16. There are a variety of, of pending legislation from Congress. Other states are looking at, at, at other ways to address this issue. Um, can a subnational economy, which is the BC government, fundamentally have much of an impact on um, uh, search companies or on social media companies like Facebook that are worth billions and billions of dollars? These companies are bigger than governments. Can we really fundamentally have any impact on their core business model? I do appreciate the optimism from the Premier and the Minister when it comes to holding these companies accountable. The question is, what are the instances? And so that idea of harm, what kind of harm are we looking at? Is it the subjection of content and advertisements? Is it the the bullying that the person is individually receiving because the platform is the medium? Uh, And then does it open up a very large can of worms? Can equally we hold schools accountable because a school is a place where individuals come together and then bullying may happen in that space? If we look at it in a larger scope, we have seen in the European Union that advocacy for children in these spaces can come with healthy regulations that not only empower the young person to be able to grow with the tools, but also once they have got to a point where their maturity matches maybe their age and they turn around and say, you know, I made some posts online. I'd like to see these things taken down. That you can get a little bit of the, the advocacy that we'd like to see when it comes to advocating for young people in a space where they are quite vulnerable. But the other side of it, too, is the age gating. And so when we talk about this law in Florida, you know, they're saying uh, if you're under 16, it's quote unquote against the law. But how do you regulate that if anybody can sign up and anybody can make any age? You'd have to put in a process to be able to identify the person. And that opens up another conversation conversation of whether or not the internet is safer when we have the ability to be anonymous online. What obligation do these companies have to society? Well, as a whole, uh, none. Uh, um, they provide us a service where we choose as the users to use it for free. This is a convenience-based technology that allows us to stay connected. The hard part there is that when it comes to the terms and service, majority of the users themselves never take the time or the due diligence to really understand their responsibilities in that space. So we obviously know about harassment of individuals, whether they be young or old. Uh, we know about some of the toxic uh, tropes that we see online. But the reality of it is, is that there's always going to be a conversation of what's appropriate. And then if we can't, we can't match that with the existing laws that we have in place, then we have to find new ways of, as a society, understanding that the tools we're using in this space are extensions of our everyday environments. And so more and more users themselves can't be just looking to blame the companies. We have to hold ourselves accountable in that space. And that comes down to the message boards. We see our family members posting on social media. We see people sharing this information. Where do we start that from our homes and our communities and ask people, what is your intent in this space? Mm-hmm. Jesse, uh, 
uh, lots to talk about, lots of uh, lots to just digest uh, after today's announcement. Look forward to chatting with you uh, in the near future on this issue once again. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jeff. If you've uh, logged on to the Vancouver Sun or even picked up a copy of the Sun, you would have noticed that Kim Bolin, uh, a well-known crime reporter in our city, has uh, uh, been in the midst of a, a global cl- uh, crime series called Lethal Exports. Uh, the series looks at uh, the impact drug smugglers here uh, in British Columbia are having on a variety of nations around the world, but also how we're uh, dealing with the issue of drugs uh, and organized crime as well. The the, the series is uh, done in conjunction with the Lieutenant Governor's BC Journalism Fellowship in partnership also with the Jack Wester Foundation. But it's a fascinating uh, story and stories uh, from far away as Vietnam to Fiji to Australia uh, and looking at uh, local issues as well, including our as well. I wanted to talk to her about it because I just had a great time reading it and I highly recommend uh, you log on as well online and take a look at uh, the five-part series. The fifth part just uh, ran today in the Vancouver Sun. Joining me now to talk about the series is Kim Bolin, a crime reporter for the Vancouver Sun. Kim, thank you for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, this is a, a fascinating conversation. First of all, congratulations to you uh, for this five-part series. Uh, I've enjoyed all of it. And I think it adds so much to the broader conversation about uh, drugs and organized crime in British Columbia, not only how we're dealing with the, the situation here, but the repercussions of it in other parts of the world as well. What um, convinced you to take on a big project like this? Because it's something that does take a lot of time and a lot of resources. What convinced you that it was time to do a series of this sort? Well, I think when you're a beat reporter like I am covering gangs and the gang conflict that goes back 20 years now in B.C., you're always looking for what the cause really is. And I kept seeing little tidbits here and there about what was going on internationally. We had the murder almost two years ago now of Jimmy Sandu right here from Abbotsford, and he was shot to death in Thailand at a beachfront resort. And then we found out that uh, you know, the alleged killers were with the Wolfpack gang again, people right here. So I was seeing those international connections, uh, but not really being able to investigate them because I'm based here. Uh, then in addition to that, over the last year, CBSA made a number of announcements about these record shipments that they had intercepted of methamphetamine out of the port of Vancouver headed to Australia and New Zealand. And we're talking like tons and tons of methamphetamine. So, again, like any reporter, I was extremely curious about who is behind this. What's this really about? So because I was able to get a fellowship from the Lieutenant Governor's Foundation, I was able to go and travel to these countries and talk to people there and find out what was going on. And it was uh, really uh, fairly earth-shattering for me, honestly. Mm -hmm. Uh, When you say earth-shattering, why? It was earth-shattering because... um, you know, I think we're, we're so used to focusing on what's before us here, mm-hmm. you know, the toxic drug crisis, the gang shootings. But when you look at the international level, you see that there are Canadian organized criminals deeply involved at the highest levels of the worldwide drug trade. And that was a real surprise to me. Not only are they deeply involved, whether it's through the Hells Angels, the Sam Gore Criminal Network, the United Nations Gang, Middle Eastern Organized Crime Groups, What I was really quite shocked about is at that level, they're all working together. They're basically like transnational companies, entrepreneurs. They want to make as much money as possible, uh, so they all cooperate, right? Mm -hmm. So if you see 
a shipment that's seized at the Port of Vancouver, and it's literally a ton or two tons, it won't be owned by one person. It'll be a group uh, working together uh, to get the drugs there and sell them or each seize part of that, that load. So I found it really fascinating and also troubling because when we look at the violence at the street level, you know, we have like, you know, this 22-year-old who thinks he's a member of the UN gang, you know, shooting at that 22-year-old who thinks he's a, you know, repping the Wolfpack gang, right? So they have these hostilities that have been borne out, you know, with all this violence. And yet at the highest levels, the people who essentially control those strings are all working together. So, you know, these young guys are being used. Uh, they're being misled. And I don't think they really have a clue when they go around committing acts of violence, thinking that they're, you know, doing their loyal duty to these higher ups in organized crime. Hmm. Now, one of the things um, you mentioned in, in, in our conversation today uh, of drugs going to Australia and New Zealand, when I think fentanyl, I think of China. And increasingly, there's been talk of uh, of dealers there working with um, the Mexican cartels who instead of needing large swaths of land, let's say for marijuana, you need a very small area to, 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 to do synthetic drugs. But I didn't think of us producing it here and then exporting it to other nations, similar to what Mexico was doing more and more. Um, how, did, how does it come about that we in Canada can can produce this stuff and now it's being exported to places like Australia and New Zealand? I always assumed... It would be done in places like Mexico where there's cheaper labor and they have the ability of a system that is, isn't as, as, um, as progressive as ours. Uh, but we're doing more of it out of here. Why has Canada and British Columbia specifically become the place where you can actually produce it and then sell it abroad? Well, I think, you know, when organized crime sees an opportunity, they take that opportunity. And some of the drugs are still coming uh, from Mexico up here and then being transshipped through the port of Vancouver. Uh, but what we do see happening uh, is these super labs where they're producing much more methamphetamine fentanyl than the Canadian market can use. So, you know, police believe now that we have become an export country. Uh, we also have all the precursor chemicals. 90% of the precursor chemicals used to make methamphetamine and fentanyl are completely unregulated in Canada. And that's because they're used in legitimate industry. They're used in the petroleum industry, plastics industry, and all kinds of other legitimate businesses. So there are no regulations on those. And the chemicals that are regulated, uh, those businesses have to get permits through Health Canada. Again, most of them are legitimate businesses. So due to privacy, Health Canada is not able to give the information about who's getting you know, the more regulated chemicals here in Canada to the police, right? So there is, there is kind of a lack of information sharing. What police are doing to respond to that is they're trying to work directly with industry because, again, most of the businesses who are getting these chemicals, producing them or importing them, are very legitimate businesses. They do not want to be linked to the production of fentanyl or methamphetamine, right? So there are measures underway to kind of deal with this, but given that these chemicals are widely available here, they're being used by organized crime. Mm. Now, one of the issues uh, I found quite interesting is... The charter regulations in our country, or the, the the charter itself, and that when when you do go after a criminal, you do have to provide information in regards to uh, how the police came about um, this information. And in our country, too much of it has to be uh, to be uh, disclosed to the uh, alleged criminal 
to the point that many other police jurisdictions around the world don't want to share information for us with us, which I found quite interesting in that we have to disclose too much of the very criminals we're trying to charge in regards to our techniques, our uh, uh, undercover officers in regards to what they're doing. That I found fascinating. Yeah, it is really interesting. And obviously the Charter of Rights is an important thing in this country, and it's there for a good reason. Uh, but sometimes these decisions, if you look at Stinchcomb, which is the one on disclosure, it's from 1991. There are subsequent rulings that update it. But the complexity of organized crime has really increased over the last 30 years. And sometimes the court rulings, the precedent set in court rulings in Canada you know, haven't kept up with this increased complexity, right? So you have people saying, look, we have to, you know, be careful here or it's not possible for us to follow through with a criminal investigation at the highest level because there would be information or evidence from outside of the country uh, and our partners would not be thrilled if that came out in a court in Canada. So, you know, uh, some of the experts I spoke to are saying we need to take a look at this. We need to see what we can do better. Or we have to be satisfied uh, with the fact that, you know, people involved in a very serious criminal activity here in Canada may get prosecuted in other jurisdictions, but not here at home. Hmm. Uh, one of the issues I read with great interest um, was this story from today in regards to uh, our ports uh, and some of the challenges before it. Um, I recall my early days as a reporter covering uh, port police, and uh, I think it was a, one or two senators advocating for it back in, I think this is late 90s maybe. Uh, and here we are today still having that conversation. Uh, why do you think there's been such a, uh, such a challenge for a nation like ours uh, that is open to the world, with a, you know, especially here in Vancouver with a, a very large port and fast-growing port, uh, that we don't have a, you know, a full force at our ports investigating, arresting people, all those things that are required with the amount of cargo that comes through. Why are we still at this point where we're having a debate and conversation about an actual, having a uh, a port police. Yeah, it is surprising. It doesn't seem to have resonated much with the people in Ottawa who make these kinds of decisions. I did a series back in 2015 on some of the lack of security at the port and the fact that there are a number of Hells Angels and other people with criminal histories in smuggling drugs into Canada. They've got convictions in the United States, and they're still able to work as longshore workers. You know, that's troubling, right? Now, there isn't uh, port uh, security clearances required for every longshore worker. There's just a small percentage that have to get security clearances for so-called restricted areas on the port. But in talking to people that work there, they say, look, even if you don't have a security clearance, you can really walk all over. Who's going to stop you, right? So, you know, it is a real problem, both the security clearance issue and also the fact that there is no uniform police presence, you know, basically on the front line, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, in the case of Delta Port, the biggest port, uh, you know, City of Delta, Delta Mayor George Harvey have been very concerned about this. They've commissioned this report, which has a lot of very interesting recommendations, uh, some of which don't seem like they'd be all that hard to implement, right? Like, even for the security clearance, they're not saying, oh, gee, everyone you know, working, like tens of thousands of people have to get this now, that would be very onerous. They're saying grandfather the existing people in, and when new people are hired, they have to go through the security clearance process no matter what, no matter what job they have. Uh, They're also talking about like a small levy on each container 
that goes to the port, like 10 to $15 to pay for a uniformed police force right there on the dock. So it's very hard to see why this hasn't resonated you know, at the national level, especially when we saw the federal government responding to the issue out of uh, the ports in the east uh, with the stolen vehicles. You know, they're going to have a task force and an immediate meeting over that in the coming weeks, but they won't do anything, it seems, in response to, you know, huge amounts of drugs being exported out of the port of Vancouver. Hmm. Now, one of the things I always find interesting, you see the impacts of drug use on streets of Vancouver all the time. We talk about this on this show and many others, uh, but we sometimes don't think of the impact drugs that leave our port and the impact it's having on, on societies outside of Canada. And one of the stories that you covered as a part of your series is the impact drugs from uh, British Columbia and Canada are having on Fiji. Walk me through a little bit when you visited there. What was it like there? And what, what did you see? Well, first of all, it's a wonderful country, and the people are just so warm and welcoming, and I really enjoyed visiting there, even though it was for a very difficult story to report on. And uh, what I had heard is that, you know, there was a huge increase in methamphetamine use in the country, uh, that they are on the transnational drug shipment route. So, you know, there's what they call spillage. In other words, drugs are ending up there on that island uh, in some cases, the transnational organized crime groups are paying locals to unload there and send smaller boats into Australia and New Zealand, and they're getting paid in product. So the methamphetamine use has become very widespread. Uh, people are injecting it there. There's no drug treatment. Some of the users that I spoke to, very tragic situations uh, because there's a shortage of needles. People are sharing needles and HIV rates are increasing. Uh, there's also not just the ships passing by, uh, there's also been an issue with um, methamphetamine, smaller quantities like a kilo at a time being sent via air freight out of Vancouver uh, to Fiji. And even that's had a big impact because if someone does that 100 times, they get a fair amount down to the place, the destination. Uh, so, yeah, it was very, very tragic. Um, Coincidentally, since I left, they've now seized three tons of methamphetamine there that kind of proved what I said in my story, which is that it was being stacked or stockpiled there so it could be transported into these lucrative markets Mm. uh, down the road, right? So, you know, it does seem like finally politicians there are taking notice and, you know, they're looking internationally for help and assistance because they're a poor country and it's an island nation, 330 islands, and without the police force or customs people in most of those locations. So these transnational organized crime groups really prey on not just Fiji, but other islands in the South Pacific by using them as a place to kind of unload drugs and send them on to their destination. Um, And it's really tragic. Mm -hmm. My final question to you, what are the two or three things you think we as a society, and especially as a province and city, should be doing to deal with some of the uh, security challenges, uh, the legal challenges, and even the personal tragedies that are there. Is there two or three things that you think should be a priority based on your series, what you've learned? What are the two or three things that you think we need to be addressing to somehow deal with some of these issues that we and I have been talking about? Well, I, I think we need to listen to the experts. I'm just a reporter that has you know done my best to try and present everything to the Canadian public because these are not issues that we're necessarily been considering here in Canada, right? But, I mean, start with, you know, uh, a forum uh, organized by 
the federal government into some of these issues, you know, port security, uh, precursor chemicals, why we're ineffective at targeting the highest levels of organized crime, while police across Canada and in BC in particular are very good at, you know, going after people, you know, involved directly in shootings or smaller drug line operators here. Why can't we get the top people? What do we need to change to do that? And honestly, I think you need a panel of experts to come together and figure this out and hammer out some recommendations. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't, uh, we're going to be making the same mistakes over and over again, having the same conversations over again. And that's uh, part of the challenge. And I know not just this series, but you've been covering crime for a long time. So you may not think you're an expert, but uh, I think you are. Those are my opinions. That's my opinion. So I'll stick with it. Uh, Kim, uh, first of all, congratulations on this fabulous series. I want to encourage all our readers to... Uh, go uh, click on the Vancouver Sun, not only for today's story, but the other four uh, that uh, Kim has done. Uh, Kim, thank you so much and congratulations on, on such great work. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about these issues. Thank you, Jess. Goodbye now. It's over. That's all. Thank you. All right. That's a wrap. It's Friday and this is The Wrap on the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Thank God it's This week, we look at BC's move to restrict cell phone use in schools, and we ask, would you pay $60 or more to reserve a seat at a Vancouver restaurant? Joining us today is our regular rap panel, Leah Halives, the TV reporter and radio host, and Sarah Daniels is a real estate agent in South Surrey, author and broadcaster as well. Leah, Sarah, welcome. What's happening? Happy Friday. Oh, let's get to the issue number one. And it occurred today, Premier David Eby says uh, BC is moving to restrict cell phones in schools to help kids stay safe against online threats. It'll be up to each school district to decide how that will be enforced. Uh, Leah, let me start with you first and foremost. Uh, I grew up in a different era, different time. Didn't have those challenges. Uh, But uh, your thoughts on uh, BC moving forward to restrict cell phone use uh, in schools. You know, the teenager in me is like, no, don't do it. Don't do it. And then the adult in me is like, yes, this is a good idea. I mean, kids really should be focusing on schoolwork, not their cell phone and updating social media. You know, I think they need to focus more on school. So I'm kind of with that. And I mean, the fact that David Eby said, though, that he's leaving it to the local districts to decide exactly what restrictions those will be will be interesting because I wonder, you know, some um, some areas might have harsh restrictions, so kids will want to go to a different school. Like, what is going to entail from all of this? Mm-hmm. And then I also thought what EB said about um, launching the services to remove images from the internet and pursue predators. I think he needs a big round of applause for that because we're so far behind. And with AI, as we know, with deep fakes, it's a scary world for kids out there today, right? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Sarah, what about you? I mean, uh, you know, I on the surface of it. I hate big tech. I mean, I use their services, yep. <laughs> but they've grown so big. Uh, I actually, when I, when I heard it, I actually called my wife and she thought it was a fabulous idea. I don't know. What are your thoughts? <laughs> well, um, I, I did a quick search before we came on the air and I thought, because my first thought was, why is there free Wi-Fi in schools? Yeah. Like, this, mm. you know, most kids have, like, from my understanding, because I am not a parent, but they have, they're usually on their parents' plan, right? And they might have, like, a limited pa- uh, parcel of data per month for that for them to use. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I looked online. It was like there was something that popped up for the district of Pitt Meadows Maple Ridge, apparently, that they had restricted Wi-Fi in schools. That was about six or seven years ago. But my understanding is, for the most part, schools are providing we- free Wi-Fi. That needs to stop right there. 
because you're mm. uh, that that's just sort of like exacerbating the problem. But I mean, again, I grew up, you know, when like people, you know, walked to school. So, you know, a whole different era. I, I don't understand why the why your your phone is allowed in the classroom in the first place. If they're like carrying it from classroom to classroom, you know, fine. Then it has to be handed in at the front of the class, you know, and, and then you can pick it up at the end. But I mean, I know, you know, a lot of parents say that they need to be in touch with their child. But really, like, do you need to know what they're doing at 1045? Like, they're probably walking between class. <laughs> Get over it. Like, my parents, you know, never would have even occurred to them to check in. They wouldn't have even noticed if I wasn't home till about 5.30 or 6. So, you know, I mean, come on. we It's not necessary. Um, you know, there's computers, et cetera, like in the library that they can use if they have to digitally look something up. They don't necessarily have to have their phone with them at all times. To me, it just seems like when I first heard about cell phones being used in class, I thought, great, a great way to cheat on classes. You know, oh, yeah. I mean, right? Later, I mean, yeah. you're not learning yeah. anything. You're just Googling stuff. And now with AI, yeah. you don't even know what, what you're Googling is What's true. What's real. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, think, I think, you know, I think the issue is distraction more than anything. Right. Kids in the mm-hmm. back on Snapchat, whatever Social it may media, be. Social media, all of that. I mean, in regards to the <laughs> Wi-Fi, I mean, when you look at cell phone plans, and we still pay a lot in this country, but they're getting cheaper, I think, for 35 yeah. Bucks now, you get 30 gigabytes Where of data. 35? Give me a break. Yeah. And so, That's like, up north. yeah. It, but it's, it's, it's sort of like, you know, if mom and dad are going to provide that cell phone, and at some point the kids do need it with their part time jobs, it's just part of life. And I think it really is. We've allowed it to go on for so long. We should be restricting it. You know, if you need a calculator, get a calculator, keep the yeah. cell phone out of the classroom. I think it's just healthier. And I'd like to get it to a point where, you know, we adults have a problem with this as well in regards to <laughs> well, yeah, know, we're at the red bad. light, hopefully, or even more so and <laughs> people on their phones. So, I mean, the kids shouldn't be blamed because I'm, I think it's a whole societal issue. We just I'm like watching Netflix on one TV. I'm watching uh, Paramount Plus on another, and I'm on my cell phone looking at TikTok. <laughs> in one well, sitting like this is and, up and I now, say right? that, like i mean you know there's this stuff about deep fakes about uh, taylor swift and all this kind of stuff like their kids are much more savvy than like an idiot like me is online i'm not like trying to source taylor swift deep fakes and and find all this stuff but they do right and yeah. they can't find this stuff because they're i mean at three years old kids are on ipads and god knows what they're looking up i mean you know they're playing all these it's crazy so i mean i use it for work i, I you know i read stuff online like, you know, Apple News, that kind of stuff. But You're not as, on TikTok, Sarah. Oh, good Lord. No. <laughs> Why would I? I mean, it's all I can do to, like, manage Facebook and Instagram, and that's basically for work, right? Yeah, you don't want the Chinese yeah. government on your cell phone. No, <laughs> no exactly. Exactly. All right, but you, you know what? I'm me. glad it's a conversation that's starting in society. We can actually get serious about saying how much of uh, cell phones and online and especially social enough. media. Yeah, I'm social media companies. have started it earlier. Right? Exactly. Right. Well, it's a start. Like, hopefully they, they, it, they go through with like, it. Would and your parents have bought you a basically a $1,200 portable computer to keep in your back My pocket? parents used to Freedom. kick me out of the house at minus 35 and will you <laughs> <laughs> get that's class. what I'm saying is so that you're, you're giving a kid a twelve hundred dollar year, which they break the screen of and everything else, no and, and you're, it's just bonkers. You cell know what they phones. need? They give all the kids yeah. like like the original cell phones from twenty years ago, where you had to <laughs> yeah. like to text. You had to like press the same button five times yeah. for the right letter. The QWERTY. That's... The QWERTY. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Well, coming. Exactly. We're on topic number two. We learned in a recent article that more establishments uh, in Vancouver. Uh, they're charging reservation deposits or fees to help prevent no-shows. Uh, in some restaurants, it's $60. Uh, we made some calls around town. Lavatoire.
bar and gas down, $50 charge per person applied in case of cancellations or no-show. Uh, Burdock & Co., which is a Michelin star restaurant on Main, $50 deposit. Uh, published on Main, also a Michelin star restaurant. For a tasting menu reservation, the restaurant requires a prepaid reservation for parties one to four at a cost of $165 what? per person. Wow. Uh, for La Carte and Bar reservation, $60 deposit per table. Um, there's one here for uh, Winter Lust for lunch and dinner, which is inside a dome, I guess. I guess you want to eat inside of Igloo, I guess. $100 deposit required upon booking and applied for food and beverages wow. during visit. Refundable cancellation up to 48 hours before reservation. So you better be sure you're going to eat there. Uh, Leah, let me go to you first. What do you think about these uh, these fees or I guess these deposits uh, when you go to reserve uh, seats? Okay, wait a minute. If I'm the one doing the reserving for like five or six people and then my jackass friends cancel on me, I'm on oh. the hook for 60 bucks per person? Like, potentially. What? Potentially right? at, at these high-end restaurants, yeah. How does that make sense? Like, I okay, I get it. If people, you need better you friends. Know, cancel. Yeah, right? They better not do that. They're listening, I'm sure. <laughs> I think that like... If you're like, I always, if I have to cancel, I'm calling or I do it online. I do everything, book everything online. Mm -hmm. So I'll go online and cancel if I have to. But then there are those people that don't do that, which is awful. So I understand that. But I just think that maybe just one fee and then like if they, you know, it doesn't have to be 60 bucks per person, maybe 20 bucks. And then if they don't show up, you cash that in. Because if that happens to them to a lot, they're going to be banking money anyway. And then I was also reading about that pre-booking your meals. Who does that? I never know what I want until I get to the restaurant. So I don't know. I guess I'm not dining out anytime soon. <laughs> Sarah, what about you? I mean, these are higher end restaurants. Yes, it's right. not the it's not the local white spot, but uh, no, uh, but it 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 is. I mean, it's it's a lot of money. Now, at first, when I was reading this, I thought, okay, are they charging like you know, if you're trying to book a patio seat or something like that in the summer? And they're charging to reserve that for the, you know, the people that want to be seen and, and be seen and, you know, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> you know, whatever, fine. But honestly, the restaurant business has been through hell for the last couple of years. Yeah. Yes, these are very high-end restaurants, but these very high-end restaurants have huge overhead, rent, all that kind of stuff. We all know that the uh, issues that restaurants have been suffering through, you know, trying to pay back pandemic loans, et cetera, et cetera, so on. And so if a a party of six in a restaurant that may only seat 30 doesn't show up for a 730 dinner reservation, that is a big kick in the bottom line. So Mm -hmm. you know what? I don't I don't really blame them. If you want to go to like if you're lucky enough to get a a reservation at a Michelin uh, star restaurant. And may I just say that it would be completely lost on me because I am a hot dog and craft dinner kind of girl (laughs) all the live long day long. So this is not ever going to affect my bottom line because I would not know the difference between good food and a grade five, like, you know, a, a, a child's plate. I, it just would never make any sense to me. But if you're making a reservation somewhere there, and there are a lot of jackasses that, you know, just make reservations at four or five different places and then decide the night of and don't bother canceling. I remember people awesome. doing that back in the day. Yes. If, you're, if, you're in a, if you're in a small restaurant, like I said, 30 people, you've got three or four wait staff, you've got a kitchen, et cetera, et cetera, so on. You've got rents to pay, bills to pay, all that kind of stuff, and a table of six or eight doesn't show up for that seven thirty or eight o'clock seating. Yeah, that is big but money out the out the door. High so end I, restaurants I, can I am afford on the side it, of the restaurants. Right? Believe it or not, on this one, I'm usually the person that would say this is ridiculous, but 
<laughs> business is business. You make a reservation, you honor it because the restaurant has. If it's has, a three star they, Michelin, I'm with you. If it's there three are no stars, three star Michelins anywhere near us. I know there's us, none in so. Vancouver. No, <laughs> but but honestly, like, could you imagine though? Like, I mean, if you were if if you or I were hired for an event and that we show up and then they said, mm. oh, by the way, if we forgot, we we canceled the event. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. thinking like, but you you hired me and my no. fee was X and and I yeah. changed my whole day around and I saved this time. That's you got to think of it yeah. from the other side, right? Because you would be choked. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And the profit margins aren't <laughs> high in, in restaurants, that's for sure. And they, you raise a good point, especially post-pandemic. It's a huge issue. Ladies, we're out of time. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. Have you too, guys. Week. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.